Are you a hunter or an outdoor enthusiast? Take your love for firearms to the next level with Goat Guns. Our miniatures are an ideal addition to your hunting gear or cabin decor. Each model is meticulously crafted, capturing the essence of legendary firearms. Celebrate your passion for the outdoors by displaying these stunning pieces. With Goat Guns, you can showcase your love for hunting and firearms in a unique and artistic way. Explore our collection now and embrace your outdoor spirit at GoatGuns.com. Amos Barshat, uh, thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you. you for uh, helping us report a story that is unlike any other story we have done on this show. I was hesitant to do this episode, uh, not because I didn't think it was uh, like genuinely, genuinely fascinating, but because I'm always mindful of the ways in which sometimes, you know, sports outlets, they just want to shoehorn sports into like the serious news story. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And sometimes it just feels both flimsy and forced in terms of the connection that they're drawing. This one, though, um, does not feel that way to me. I've reported on the way the sports and the politics uh, interact for a long time. And, and just for me, as, as, as someone trying to understand the news, you know, I've always felt like uh, it's a way to get closer to the way people actually interact with the news. Yes. With this one, with Israel and this, these soccer teams uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, it, it's just what was on my mind. Okay, so this has been on my mind for a very long time now, this basic dilemma. What are we supposed to do on our show, which is technically a sports show, about the biggest story in the world? We are a newsroom, I say this tongue-in-cheekly sometimes, and I wanted to actually think about how we're supposed to touch the thing that pretty much nobody, if they don't have to, wants to touch in public. And I get why. This is the most generous version of this motive, I suppose. But lots of people just don't know enough. It is a complicated story. It is sad. It is controversial in the most obvious ways. And so I get it. But I've been reading the work of Amos Barshad for more than a decade now. Amos is a writer who was at Grantland, The Washington Post, The New York Times Magazine, all these places. And he is now working for The Lever an independent, reader-supported news site at levernews.com, where you can go read a companion version of the story that we assigned Amos to report for us here today. Because of all the topics he has covered, the one that stuck out to me ever since I first read it, his reporting from there 10 years ago, was Israel. And specifically, it was about the Israeli government. And this administration, which is going to dictate which direction this current war goes next. Yeah, so I want to set the scene here. When did you realize that the war between Israel and Hamas, which started, of course, with the terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas on October 7th, when did you realize that that was actually a sports story? Yeah, you know, at first the uh, news was coming out and I was just trying to make sense of it and wasn't thinking at all about a way in for me. Um, I have reported from Israel uh, in the past, but, you know, I uh, live here in New York and 
was just reading the news trying to understand. Hamas unleashed a ferocious attack over the weekend that seemed to come from everywhere, raining deadly rockets into residential streets and setting militant fighters across the Gaza border where they murdered and kidnapped Israeli civilians. Hamas is warning it will execute the hostages it kidnapped over the weekend if Israel continues to retaliate in Gaza. You know, there are moments in this life literally when the pure unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world it was a few days after that that uh, i saw a video clip a group of soccer fans ran through a hospital in tel aviv and they are supporters of this team Beitar jerusalem their supporters group is called la familia and they are a notorious organization in israel there's a, a minister that has in the past suggested declaring them a terrorist organization for uh, various reasons. What happened was they uh, had basically come across a rumor that a Hamas fighter was being treated at this hospital in Tel Aviv, and they decided to take matters into their own hands. I did speak to a doctor, Yoram Klein, who uh, works at uh, the hospital in Tel Aviv. They stormed the hospital on bikes, you know, young people dressed in black on motorcycle. People might confuse them for a storm by the Hamas. At the time, there was no Hamas in the hospital. So they actually invaded the hospital and went from floor to floor to see if there are no terrorists. There was none. And the shouting went quickly from death to the terrorists, quickly to, like, within a minute, death to Arabs, and within seconds, death to left-wing people, Jews. I knew so little coming into this story that you've reported here about how fanatical some fans in Israel are about their soccer teams. So just explain Beitar Jerusalem. Like, where do they fit into, like, the political, uh, cultural landscape in Israel? This is the Israeli uh, domestic soccer league, the top flight league that we're talking about, which is, you know, a relatively minor league. And Beitar Jerusalem is uh, one of the traditional powerhouses of the league. Is also known as the uh, team of the right wing. I, I want to actually understand how extreme this faction is. Like, yeah. La Familia, you yeah. called them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that alone, I'm like, why are they called <laughs> La Familia? Yeah, you know, I've uh, spoken to a researcher, uh, kind of an expert in La Familia, and she uh, said that that's kind of what you'd assume. They're trying to sound like, uh, first of all, like they're from Europe, so so the ultras. Right, like the, the hardcore, like European yeah, 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 soccer yeah. fans. I'm sure we've all kind of seen footage of the guys who are bringing the flares, bringing the banners, leading the chants, the drums, um, you know, kind of associated with Italy and Spain. So they pick this name that kind of sounds to them, you know, Italian. Mm. Their politics uh, uh, are very, very clear. Uh, You know, there are other groups in the world, uh, in in world soccer that, you know, flirt with the far right or borrow symbols. Like these guys aren't flirting. They're running around chanting death to the Arabs. This is the Jewish state. I hate all the Arabs. Like, there's no, uh, no confusion. But I want to go back to the time you spent about a decade ago in Israel yeah. as you're reporting on Beitar and, and La Familia in person, which seems um, 
horrifying uh, to contemplate at this point. Um, but you, in that time, uh, in that place, what did you see when it came to just their position in the political superstructure? 2013, I was in, um, I was in Israel reporting this story for Grantland. Beitar had signed some players uh, that were Muslim. That led to the fans, specifically La Familia, to revolt. Uh, they were so angry by this that they set fire to the trophy room at the Beitar headquarters. The confusing thing was that the team hadn't signed, you know, Israeli Arabs. They had signed two guys from Chechnya. Right. They're not, at least they're not Arabs. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they, they think they're being cute or clever, threading the needle. La Familia you know, effectively makes it very clear um, that they will not have this. Multiple owners over the years of Beitar have tried to push back on La Familia, have tried to push back on this radical fan base. Does La Familia listen to what the team, it's, it seems like they have their own pretty distinct agenda. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, the 2013 was basically a huge victory for La Familia. They managed to get these guys to leave by the end of the next season. Mm. To this date, uh, there has not been an Arab or a Muslim player at, at Beitar. So, you know, they're actually wow. dictating, like, who can play and who can't, you know. Um, it's, not a, uh, it's not a subtle thing or, or, or some sort of a, you know, in the background kind of influence. And so that influence, though, how has that functioned at a time when the political administration of the state of Israel has also been now leaning rightward, trending directionally yeah. in that way? I mean, yeah, to come back to what, you know, we first asked, you know, how is this a sports story? I mean, t- for me, this feels like a reflection um, of the of the right wing, um, the ruling coalition. Politicians have for, for decades fronted as Beitar fans to, 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 you know, to gain support, to gain voters. And as an example, here is the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, declaring his allegiance to Beitar in front of this crowd of flag-waving, raucous fans. <laughs> There's an implicit connection between uh, certain elements of the right-wing coalition and La Familia. You know, to me, La Familia have increasingly acted as the street fighters, you know, for the right wing. There's been many protests, movements in the last few years in Israel. Uh, Most recently was a weekly protest movement against an attempt by the ruling right-wing coalition to effectively neuter the Israeli Supreme Court. La Familia acted as like a counter-ballast. You know, they were kind of called upon to come out and, and be the counter-protesters. Mostly that involved, again, chanting uh, horrific things like death to Arabs and some funnier things like, where are the whores of Antifa? <laughs> Oh, man, they're on Twitter. (laughs) They're on Twitter, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They hate Antifa. You're describing a scene in which this soccer fan base has been conscripted to fight an explicitly political war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, you know, they love it. I mean, this is great. You know, it puts them centrally in the conversation. And at the same time, the, uh, the right wing feel like they have support in the street, you know? Right. But there is clear indications that La Familia is seen as kind of a like a strike force or like a little militia, you know, uh, to call forward. And usually when they come out to the street, there's violence. The protesters are, are, are injured. Um, uh, Arab bystanders are injured. The person that uh, is central to the story currently is uh, the Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir. 
Ben Gavir, a man one commentator dubbed the David Duke of Israel, is so extreme that he makes our very own Marjorie Taylor Greene and Carrie Lake and Doug Mastriano look like woke leftists. He is an openly racist, anti-Arab member of a far, far, far right party that Netanyahu joined with to form his coalition. He's come in with this ruling right-wing coalition. He represents the most radical strain of Jewish supremacy. His uh, background is a defense lawyer for Jewish extremists. He believes in expanding the settler movement. In public, he represents the extremist nature of, of this ruling coalition. And he uh, is a self-described uh, Beitar fan, of course. In fact, here is Ben Gavir in the middle of a crowd of singing Beitar fans on video, arm in arm. So he has seen soccer be this useful, I mean, I guess, both a figurative but also potentially a physical, literal cudgel to do what to his enemies? Yeah, I mean, he has uh, used it to become, you know, a populist figure to make himself seem like a man of the people. In the old days, politicians used to go to the market in Jerusalem, uh, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and do all that kind of stuff. And in the last few decades, you know, Teddy Stadium has become the center. Yeah, you go there and you put the mm. scarf on and uh, the Beitar supporters chant their anti-Arab chants and, you know, it's Mar Ben Gvir is there taking selfies, you know. It's a familiar scene and it's an effective scene and uh, it allows him to not even have to say the horrible things, right? It's like uh, the people around him are saying the horrible things. And just to establish how horrible these things are, in this scene here, the fans are chanting, we are the most racist team in the country. It's literally what they're saying as translated. One uh, notable incident with uh, Ben Gvir and La Familia is that he's actually defending them on the national news. Um, there's this uh, contentious interview he was doing, kind of was being pushed on his embrace of La Familia, yeah. and he kind of just snapped. And, uh, you know, this kind of echoes of Trump's famous comments after Charlottesville. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And, you know, what he said was, in La Familia, there are officers in the IDF and there are people who serve and who are moral and have high values. Uh, please stop doing character assassination for the entire world. So, you know, this is uh, the Minister of National Security going on national news to defend them, which I'm sure they loved. And just to be very clear about this, their enemy, as they see it, is, is who? So their cross-city rival is called Hapoel Jerusalem. Hapoel is not a, historically a big club, but the fans are super devoted. Small but passionate fan base. The interesting thing about them is that they are uh, explicitly a club that uh, fights for coexistence, you know, Arab-Jewish solidarity. It's a very, very different uh, mentality. And they actually share a stadium. You said they're sharing the same physical yeah, location. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a funny thing to wrap your head around, uh, the way that, you know, both these groups are uh, beholden to their fans, uh, but, in, but in very different ways. Um, you know, Hapoel is actually fan-owned. So this is, this is a team that is populist in, in, in some structural yeah. ways, then, yeah. as well, historical ways, as well as in terms of um, their ideology. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, there's a lot going on, you know. So, so yeah, so Hapoel Jerusalem is, is, is tied to the once powerful trade union that, uh, that, uh, ex that is still exists in Israel, but it isn't quite as powerful. 
Hopwell means the worker. You know, they have the sickle and hammer in their uh, in their slogan. It's all very explicit. And then at the same time, this current iteration of the club has created this community literally, you know, direct democracy system, you know, fans that pay around $300 a year get voting rights on the, uh, you know, on the board. The board appoints the the CEO, the CEO hires the manager and the coach. So, you know, ultimately, if the fans aren't happy, you know, things are going to have to change. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating way to think about being a sports fan, you know, especially for me as an American sports fan. You know, I've loved the Celtics my whole life and I just give them my money, Not you know. Not quite as socialist. Yes, yeah, the Celtics. yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I bought a lot of Paul Pierce T-shirts. So again, I want to be mindful of the ways in which I'm not oversimplifying this story, but you've painted a picture here, Amos, where two teams that share the same stadium are on two diametric sides of the aisle, um, ideologically and also politically. Hopwell, I want to just personalize them here. When you think of their fan base, is there a particular person that comes to mind? I think about a fan named uh, Hirsch Goldberg Pullen. He's 23, and he has supported them since he was like a kid, like a like a preteen. He uh, grew up in the U.S. until he was seven, so grew up in American sports culture. was a was a White Sox fan. His mom says, in part, despite his dad, who was a Cubs fan, <laughs> he moves to Jerusalem. I think he was seven or eight, and falls in love with this altogether different thing: this Israeli Jerusalem soccer culture. This team, Hapoel. His friends describe him as just super, super passionate, always standing and singing. And he uh, is a part of a supporters group uh, that you could look at as kind of a parallel to La Familia. These are the guys who are the hardcore for for Hapoel. I spoke to uh, one of his friends that is in this supporters group. His name is Naria Smith. We don't, like, sit down and watch the game, you know, like... uh, each sunflower seeds or something like other fans. We sing and we clap and we dance and we try to like uh, affect the game in our own way. Very explicitly, they believe in peace, coexistence, Arab Jewish solidarity, almost like a social outreach um, entity, you know? Uh, they love this team, that's what brings them together. Um, and then within that, they, they go forward uh, in all kinds of charitable um, acts. What do they do as, as a matter of like programs? If, if, yeah. if La Familia is over there um, setting things on fire <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, uh, hurting people, what are, what, are, what are Hirsch and his friends doing? Yeah, it's all super, you know, kind of classic do-goodery. Yeah. They held a tournament for people from Sudan uh, that were, uh, you know, effectively uh, seeking asylum in Israel. So uh, this group actually organized a day where they bused them to Jerusalem, uh, had Sudanese food and music, uh, musicians, uh, actual performers, and uh, held a tournament after a, a Jewish uh, Arab school was, uh, was torched in 2014 by a, a suspected uh, Jewish extremist. You know, they held up a banner in the stadium in support of the school. They're not like uh, an anti-occupation entity. They're not, they don't have uh, solutions to the conflict and to the occupation, and they're not really suggesting them, right? They're trying to like mm. focus in on creating uh, positivity in Jerusalem and just trying to control what they can, you know? Um, so yeah, so Hirsch, within that context, is kind of like a classic Hapoel fan, travels to away games on these bus rides uh, that, you know, bring him back home in the middle of the night. Uh, I talked to his mom, uh, Rachel, and she told me uh, all about uh, how he would just kind of finesse this with her. Oh my gosh, we're so, we were like so American. He would say to us, he'd be in high school and he'd say, I've got to go to Naharia tonight. Now that's like on the bus, that's like four hours from our house. 
this is part of the beauty of when you're an immigrant. You can tell your parents anything and they actually believe you. He'd always be like, this is the most important game, you know. You don't understand if we, like, get three points here, then this happens. And she would be like, I don't understand what you're talking. I don't understand <laughs> the calculus. Uh, but if you say if you say that's right, you know, go ahead. And, you know, he'd, like, give her heart attacks because, uh, you know, uh, there'd be bus rides in the middle of the night. I mean, there was one time I remember that I woke up and it was, like, 3.30 in the morning on a school night. And he wasn't home. And I tried his phone and it went, you know, it indicated that the phone was dead. And I was really worried. And I tried calling the other boy he was with and his phone was also dead. And of course, what had happened was the bus had broken down on the way back and none of them had any way to call any of their parents. And when he did come in, I was like, I had been sitting up waiting for him and I was like hysterical. She referred to him uh, as a teenager coming into what she said uh, it was non-sophisticated political awareness, mm. uh, which I think is, is a really nice phrase. Yeah. And I think a lot of us can relate to that being 15, 16, having like a Che Guevara poster on our walls without being able to explain why. Mm -hmm. And so he believes in something that he can't quite understand. He finds this club and it's this perfect thing for him to just pour all his heart into. He becomes just like this really well-known fan. And, uh, you know, everyone describes him as cheery, happy, you know, and and, and always shirtless. Like, a sh <laughs> <laughs> loves to be shirtless, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simon, so, I want to bring us into the day that it all started, this war, October 7th, because there were various attacks by Hamas along the border with Gaza. Where was Hirsch in all of that? You know, mass confusion, mass casualties. Um, uh, and in the middle of that, uh, Hirsch was at a music festival, uh, the Supernova Festival. That became the, the site of a mass shooting. The site of the music festival, where Hamas did mass slaughter of young people taking hostages. You're learning some more information about uh, that, that dance party that was taking place near the border. You're talking about slaughter. You're talking about human people who came face to face, shot up, stabbed, killed these people. Hundreds of civilians were killed, hunted down as they tried to flee the festival. So how do Hirsch's friends hear about this in the first place in, in, in real time as all this is unfolding. Naria, his friend, uh, told me that in the chaos of that day, you know, everyone from the fan group and the related pals were changing text messages, WhatsApp messages. It just started circulating. There was like frantic messaging uh, back and forth that uh, Hirsch is there, he's at, the, he's at the party, that we realized he went there and trying to find out his whereabouts, and, you know, sending, calling people, trying to see who, who he was with, and realizing that we, we, his family hasn't heard from him and this is real and this is happening. It took a while to understand that, that that's what happened because a lot of the people that were uh, kidnapped, they were their status was first as missing. It took a while to understand that people were kidnapped to Gaza. He was hiding in a roadside bomb shelter. 
with some 30 other people and terrorists came there and they shot into there. It's a very tight space and they threw something like eight or nine grenades. His best friend, his name is Anel Shapira. He threw seven of the eight uh, grenades that the Hamas terrorists threw into the bomb shelter. He threw them out and he saved countless lives of people. And in the end, the eighth exploded on him and killed him. Anel was also a fan and um, he was Hirsch's best friend, so we, we also remember him. So we should say here that Hirsch was severely injured by this grenade attack in this bunker, which we know in part because of cell phone video, first obtained by CNN, which shows Hirsch being loaded into a truck by gunmen and then being driven off to captivity. Other gunmen shout as they bring survivors from the shelter. Come, come, they yell. Load them. That's Hirsch on the right with another hostage. His left hand and part of his arm is blown off. The bone sticks out. That video is the last visual proof that Hirsch's mom, Rachel, has of her son. And the last thing that Hirsch told his family came in the form of text messages that he sent that same day, the day he was abducted. The first text was, I love you. The second one said, I'm sorry. And today, as of this episode, Hirsch has been away from home for 66 days. This is Hirsch's mom, Rachel, again. I would obviously really like to know how my son is doing after losing his arm. And and that was the wound that we saw, you know, when you're in a small room and and grenades are going off and bullets are being fired. Yes, he lost his arm. I have no idea if he has internal bleeding, internal damage. I don't know how his hearing is. I don't know how his sight is. She was uh, very direct about, you know, what she's going through. How How does she describe what she's feeling? Um, yeah, you know, she's talking about, she, she described almost like a physical pain. You and I are talking right now and I seem probably pretty functional and normal, but it's a lot of, um, it takes like all of my reserves to do it because it's like if you didn't see that someone's underneath me, like twisting my ankle, like backwards, like that's what it feels like. Like it, it's actual physical pain at all times. And emotional, psychological, spiritual pain. It's every kind of pain all at once. It was nice for me to speak with her about Hirsch's fandom, you know, and to hear um, all, the, all the positive stories, you know, all the, all the joy that he has had with Apoel in his life. And that team, that fan team, that club has come here to our house, has really just been, they have become family. The whole fan team had come out to support us with these huge banners. And one of his best friends said, gosh, when he gets home, he's going to really hate this. He's a lot like me. Like, we like to fly under the radar. And now, you know, there's these enormous murals of his face, you know, that just say, bring Hirsch home. And I said, you know what? I would love to handle that anger. Like, that would be amazing. Like, if I could have him home and he'd be disappointed that his face is all over Jerusalem, that I will handle. No problem. 
I think that, you know, being kind of this community club, there's a natural way that you start spreading the word in the community. There's murals in Jerusalem. And his parents, uh, independent of that, have also, from the outside, looks to me like they've done everything they possibly can, you know, to to press the right buttons, you know, to, to get this word out, to speak to politicians, to the media. The idea of what this team and club stand for these ideas of peaceful coexistence, normalizing interaction through sports, it makes it feel like this painful, this painful moment that happened, that there's still hope. And in this time of intense, exquisite pain that I am in, to know that these people are fighting for him and all of them is like a tiny ray of hope for me. There's still hope. It's hope that's that's battered and bruised and, and we're tender right now. But um I'm thankful that I that I have gotten to know these young people and that they feel so committed to these values that, that the club and that the team promote. It's pretty amazing because like to see a stadium of forty five thousand, fifty thousand people and the stadium announcer is talking about Hirsch and this his pictures on a big screen and the team has published on Twitter uh, calls to bring him back and on Facebook and they've been very involved. And I think that that's the power of our, our solidarity and our connection that could be shown also during hard times. I try not to really think about where he is or what's happening because I can think that that could go really scary really fast. But when I have a moment of a happy daydream, I picture him playing soccer there. I do. I picture him playing soccer with some children there. I don't know who those children are, if they're other hostages, if they're Palestinian kids. I don't know who they are, but I do picture that. It's a good game for teaching patience. I'm willing to watch, but like, oh, really, it takes a very long time for something to happen. So maybe, maybe it's helping him somewhere because it's that being able to sit there, like the fact that you could sit there for two hours and the score is zero one, that's, that's actually like a Zen practice of patience. Maybe it's helping him. Did you hear her um, sort of indulge the darkest fears that she might have, that Hirsch actually may not end up coming home? No, absolutely not. She's just manifesting that day, you know, when he uh, comes back into her arms. That's uh, all she was focused on. I also picture that he's probably really bummed out because he always liked being the goalie. And I think being a one-handed goalie is probably not really totally fair. But I'm thinking when he gets back, we'll get him like a gigantic bionic arm and that that left hand is going to be even bigger than it should actually be, and then he'll be an even better goalie. Rachel, his mom, speaking to us, to you. I mean, I can't imagine the nightmare that she is living this through line in her son's life where he was this soccer super fan who was like sneaking out of the house basically to go watch this team. Um, This team that 
has as its whole like mission statement, Arab-Jewish relations. And he ends up being one of the people who are kidnapped here. Yeah. And if I'm his mom, I don't know if my first instinct would be to be thankful for the team. Yeah. <laughs> it almost feels like there's this incredibly cruel irony that Hirsch specifically was one of these people who was taken. Hirsch's story is, is both deeply moving, um, I hope, to everyone, but it's also just one small window into truly an unimaginable number of tragedies that are happening simultaneously. Yeah. Today, as we're speaking, over 15,000 people have been killed in Gaza. You know, there are people buried alive. Those aren't even counted as the deaths yet. And we're talking about Hirsch. And we're like highlighting his story. But just one, but one yeah. narrow window. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Into the story. I think that it's a, it's like a, a human truism that, that we've all kind of heard this cliche that one, one death is a tragedy, you know, a million deaths is a statistic. I worry, you know, that even as we're doing this, that's where, that's what we kind of get lost in. Yes. The stories of the people being killed in Gaza, um, you know, each, each and every one of them is a tragedy, you know? Each and every one. We spoke about this story as a way to talk about Israel, uh, to talk about the political landscape in Israel. Yes. And we uh, are fixating on this club, and, and Hirsch is this basically fringe entity uh, that is fighting for some little semblance of, you know, Arab-Jewish solidarity. But the reality is that's not the country. The country uh, is more in line with Ben Gvir the Beitar diehard. The national security minister. Minister. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyone paying attention to some of the comments that have come out of kind of his allies in the uh, Israeli far-right coalition would be, you know, would be horrified. In part, it's just the the kind of flippant way in which they're talking about mass death, uh, you know, talking about flattening Gaza, right. talking about crushing Gaza. But it's also, just as, a, as an aside, uh, the flippant way in which they're disregarding the hostages. Right, this is the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations saying as much on television. We expect the Red Cross, we expect all international organizations to focus on these hostages and how they are treated and that they receive uh, treatment according to international uh, law. But it's not going to stop us, prevent us from doing what we need to do in order to secure the future of Israel. We cannot... People uh, in Ben Gvir's right-wing camp, uh, you know, talk about we have to target Hamas mercilessly without taking into serious consideration the matter of the captives. You know, another uh, minister uh, has advocated for dropping an atomic bomb on Gaza and, you know, when asked what about the hostages, said, I hope and pray for their return, but there are costs in war. Man. Back to Hirsch for a minute and the idea of when could he maybe come home... So this first phase of the hostage negotiations was focused on women and children. And uh, there was an idea that they could move towards another phase. Uh, but the negotiations have broken down. Fighting has resumed. Israel, of course, has withdrawn from negotiations in Qatar. Negotiations over the release of additional hostages in Gaza appear highly unlikely to resume anytime soon. Time is running out for those 130 or so remaining hostages inside Gaza. And one of the things that we're hearing from the families that they're so frustrated about is they feel like they understand the shape of a deal that will bring their loved ones home. It involves releasing probably thousands of Palestinian militants from Israeli jails, and they are saying to the government, make that deal now, bring our loved ones back. There is just a, a basic fact that uh, 
some elements of the Israeli government are prioritizing the war over releasing the hostages. As this was going on, as the idea of continuing the negotiations was was in the air, Ben Gvir released a statement, you know, saying stopping the war equals breaking apart the government. You know, that meant he was threatening to leave the coalition, uh, the ruling coalition, which would likely uh, trigger elections. You know, this is a kind of like, you know, the most radical option that he could come up with. And he's using it. You know, he's, he's threatening Netanyahu, the prime minister, that don't even think about trying to free more of these hostages or I'll, you know, do the worst thing for you. When you hear... Uh, you know, the ceasefire has ended, the, the the hostage negotiations are off, you know, that didn't just happen, you know. Right. There are people involved that made that decision. They are prioritizing other things. And I also just want to be very transparent about, like, the decisions we make as a show. I, I often talk about how we have a newsroom here, and we do. It's a small group of people that got to decide, like, what are we covering? And what are we therefore not covering? Yeah. And we're a 50-minute show that is about sports, technically. And so I do want to acknowledge that Hirsch's story and the story of, of Betar and Hapoel, we chose that not just because it checks those boxes, but because this is now how I'm going to see what seems to be a very um, disturbing and complicated political dynamic in Israel. Yeah. And now, just to, to put what I've learned to the test, it seems like in Ben Gavir, the national security minister, Amos, we're going to get the Betar superfan having to decide, do I want to release prisoners and exchange them for hostages when those hostages are these Hapoel superfans like Hirsch, who are not my people in the political or philosophical sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, like we talked about, I've been reporting this for 10 years, we've been reporting yes. familiar for 10 years. This is not the only way or even the dominant way of looking at things, but it, it is a way of, of looking at things. The teams echo the bigger picture. They aren't defining it, uh, but but through them, I think we can tell these human stories, uh, which which you know reflects uh, the fans, the people in power. Uh, you know this kind of mob mentality that exists with La Familia, uh, the way they influence um, events in their particular unique ways. And yeah, you know, um, to go from here to try to keep reading, try to keep understanding, you know, why this is happening the way it's happening. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope, I hope it's of value in a small, uh, contained way. Yeah, yeah. And the next human story, again, that I want us to cover together, is the story of the goalie with the biopsy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, superstar. I want that scandal. Yeah. <laughs> I want the robotic arm they can't goalie tell, scandal. They can't tell him he can't play. Come no, on. No, exactly. <laughs> You know, I'm worried tactically they'll just the the opposing teams will just go to the other arm, won't they? I mean it's <laughs> he'll be all right, but he'll be found out fairly quickly. You know what? I, I have a feeling that Rachel is gonna have a solution to yes, that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. She's she's thinking five steps ahead. Oh yeah, yeah. She hates soccer, but she's a mastermind of it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Amos Varshad, thank you for uh, sharing your reporting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I should point out at the end here that Betar and Hopewell actually played last Wednesday at Teddy Stadium, the stadium that they share in Jerusalem. And Betar won 1-0. But by the very next day, which just happened to be the first day of Hanukkah, 
Hirsch's dad, John, the Cubs fan that we had mentioned earlier, who had inspired his son's contrarian baseball White Sox fandom, was unambiguous in his rooting interest, as he explained on the Instagram account titled Bring Hirsch Home. So it's the holiday of Hanukkah now, and every day of Hanukkah, we're going to share a little snippet about Hirsch, corresponding to the number of what day it is of Hanukkah. Today's the first day. So, of course, Hershey's our first child, our one and only son, and there are lots of other ones and firsts that I could talk about. But if I'm honest, Hershey's real first love for many, many years has been Hapal Jerusalem. And then a couple days later, Hershey's sisters, Libby and Orly, followed up with some symbolism of their own. Today is day three of Hanukkah, which is a significant number because we're three siblings. As you guys know, Hirsch is our older brother with three children. Uh, he has this thing where every time the three of us are together, he'll say, oh, we're having an abuchat achim, or nesiat achim, or seret achim, everything we do together. He just adds that word. Uh, so we're just waiting for him to come back so we can have an erem achim, like we'd love to have with him. We love him and miss him and hope he comes home every day. And Hirsch's family, including Rachel, um, the mom who spoke to us is gonna keep posting videos like this. And the hope is that there can be more hostages released and that there can be another ceasefire, as unlikely as that might look right now, with the latest headlines indicating that the Palestinian death toll is rising, right alongside the number of rounds of tank ammunition that America is selling to Beitar Superfan, Itamar Ben Gavir, and the Israeli government which presumably celebrated that one-nil outcome that I had just referenced. But these teams, uh, I do want to stress, are not the only lens to see this story through, as Amos said. They are a lens, they are not the only one. And for that reason, I suppose it would be easier to not have tried to talk about any of this. But if you made it this far, listening, I think that means something, too. This has been Pablo Torre Finds Out, a Meadowlark Media production. And I'll talk to you next time. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.